0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the results of the UK election with Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, Sophie Traherne, Senior UK Political Analyst, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer.
1: Well, good morning, and I hope that the irony of a Brexit vote on Halloween and a general election outcome on Friday the thirteenth hasn't been lost on anyone. It may well have been a nightmare on Downing Street for Labour and the Liberal Democrats, but is a Conservative majority a good omen for the British economy? It certainly, should be enough to carry us through the final stages of Brexit. Joining me to peer through the fog of political rhetoric are government relations expert Sophie Trahern and chief investment officer William Hobbs. Now, whilst the idea of a Conservative conservative majority may be alien to some, to others it's the shining beacon that they need to prevent us falling into the abyss. And before I choke on any more horror film references Sophie, let's start with you. In all seriousness, it this... kind of story. works. Kind of works. Nightmare on Dining Street for the Liberal Democrats but it's It the sort of works. It, if you can tell me how many film references there were in that <laughs> intro by the end of this Plenty. podcast, I will uh, <laughs> buy you a packet of chewits. Now, in all seriousness <laughs> <That's> so, <cute. laughs> In all, all <laughs> seriousness, Sophie, um the the moves that we had last night they do mark a a very significant change a seismic change no less in the in 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 the in the UK political landscape, doesn't it? What does the new landscape look like?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, as you'll be well aware, the Conservative Party secured a significant majority. um, At the time of recording, I believe there's one seat left to declare in Cornwall. Uh, Is this because they
1: have to fly the ballot box by helicopter from the Isles of Scilly? There's
0: been some high winds, apparently, delaying delaying the seat being declared. But uh, currently, the Conservatives are on 364 seats, which is a majority of 76. And as you will have no doubt red. This is the biggest majority at Westminster since Margaret Thatcher's 1987 uh, election victory. And the key question in this context, uh, to go back to your question, it was always going to be uh, to what extent could the Conservatives make inroads into the so-called red wall of Labour seats across the Midlands, the North and Wales. And the Conservatives were pretty successful. They took seats like Bolsover, Bassett Law, Wrexham, Blythe Valley, Sedgefield, Don Valley, all these are uh, Labour heartland seats and uh, and Labour are, are facing. Their worst defeat since 1934, and Jeremy Corbyn has already confirmed this morning uh, that he will not fight another general election as Labour leader also lots of disappointment for the Liberal Democrats. They failed to make any inroads and the party's leader, Jo Swinson, was uh, defeated in her Scottish constituency, losing to the SNP. Uh, And in terms of Scotland, if there is a note of concern for Boris Johnson, it is uh, the numbers uh, for the Conservative Party in Scotland where the SNP made significant gains and, and very much claiming that the result is a mandate for a second referendum on Scottish independence. So this could be potentially quite difficult for the government. And there's also Northern Ireland to consider, where nationalist parties have made narrow gains at the expense of the Unionist Party so I think we can expect the future of the Union to be a key challenge for this government So Sophie, one
1: of the things that struck me uh, was the size of the majority. What impact is that likely to have for the Prime Minister?
0: Yeah, it's a really important question. Um, Does the size of the majority change uh, things in terms of the Prime Minister's approach to Brexit and indeed domestic policy? On Brexit, the Prime Minister now has a decisive mandate for his Brexit deal as well as the future relationship negotiations. He's definitely got more room to rem- manoeuvre and is no longer necessarily beholden to the Brexiteers and his party, the, the ERG. Um, you know, this bit of speculation this morning about whether this gives Boris Johnson enough room to, to potentially even pivot to a slightly softer Brexit. And on the domestic agenda, you know, the, the one-nation conservatism promised by the p- Prime Minister during the campaign will need to be delivered in order to keep those Northern, Midland, Welsh seats blue at the next election. So they will definitely need to demonstrate their pan-UK commitment.
1: I find it fascinating to see that map of Labour heartland just go blue it's it's an awfully long time as you say since you've seen districts that would have traditionally been solid Labour heartland we've got a very new looking sort of Tory voter base now don't we yeah now um Sophie what what are the next 100 days look like for for the Prime Minister what's his timetable from here on out
0: Well, first things first, formation of the new government, um, potentially a small-ish reshuffle, replacing cabinet ministers who are no longer there. potentially a bigger reshuffle uh, in the new year and and even a potential shake-up of Whitehall. Um, Parliament's due to return on the 17th of December, uh, and this will involve a couple of days of uh, of swearing in of all the new uh, and returning MPs. And then we've got the Queen's Speech, the state opening of Parliament expected on the 19th of December. Um, This is the formal beginning of each new session of Parliament, and it's it's really the Prime Minister's opportunity to set out his legislative agenda, building on the programme that he put forward in October, if you remember. He, He announced 26 bills at the end of October just before MPs voted uh, to back the early general election. So we can expect some domestic priorities to be central to that Queen's speech. Um, There will likely be bills on immigration, trade, fisheries, agriculture and financial services. Uh, And also the week before Christmas, we're likely to see the introduction of uh, the the Brexit deal, the withdrawal agreement bill or the WAB, uh, possibly on Friday the 20th. And the Prime Minister might try and have a vote on second reading uh, before Christmas to get the principle of the bill past, um, but it's not yet clear when the House will rise for the Christmas recess and and looking ahead just to the first part of, of the new year, January will January will of course be focused on getting uh, the WAB through Parliament and the UK leaving on the 31st of January 2020 uh, and then finally we'll, we'll, another big moment is to have a budget uh, which is looking like it's going to be the final two weeks of February, uh, so that's another key moment in the new year.
1: And the, the WAB you're referring to of course, the Withdrawal Agreements Bill. Now Will, as I was sort of tucking into my toast last night because that's all I could find for my dinner I had my iPad in one hand with the live election feed coming through Hugh Edwards and uh, and Andrew Neil in in the one hand and the Bloomberg FX rates in the other hand um, fascinating to see the way that cable particularly the strengthening of Sterling last night do you have anything to say about that? Well first of all isn't it nice to have Sophie back to cover more authoritatively the political rather than having me
2: fumbling around in the political dark so thank you Sophie uh, you made everything uh, much better there. But yes,
1: sterling did. Um, I'm move- not letting you get away with that. I find it amazing <laughs> that somebody can talk about politics without making <laughs> a pointless <laughs> reference to the 18th century. Anyway, yes, yeah, sterling
2: did rise. Uh, so immediately after the exit poll, what you found um, was that sterling rallied quite sharply, so about
1: 2% um, relative to dollar. So cable uh, rallied about 2%. Now, give us a sense of what, what would you expect normal currency movements to be like? Because 2% doesn't sound yeah, it's like. It's right? it it is, it? big for a currency move. It is big
2: for a currency move it's a it's a bigish move i guess does it signal anything well i know this is the problem and always after these kind of moves there's the kind of uh, you know the tea leaf session where everyone looks in and sort of says well what does this mean and what was actually happening and uh, in the end you know you go back um to the sort of age-old response which was that there were more buyers than sellers um Now, some people are uh, are wondering sort of with regards to UK assets in general, particularly those that kind of cling to the uh, UK's economic outlook, which are uh, are relatively rare in the global asset universe. Um, Now, those assets have definitely been sort of suffering from um, some kind of Brexit-related discount. So if you assume that, you know, all assets related to the UK economy have had a kind of black mark against them from a global investor base. Now, yesterday or last night's results likely uh, removes a bit of that black mark. Um, and so to that extent, some uncertainty has been removed. And so that's the theory behind um, what happened uh, with Sterling. But over the last couple of months, you've seen a very strong move in Sterling. And that's really based on the idea that actually over that last few months, you've seen the chances of an exit without a deal um, reduce significantly. They're not gone, not gone altogether. I think you know, Sophie
1: will tell us that, but, uh, the, but they have reduced. Now, for, for years now, it, 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 literally years, we've been talking about m- money in the sidelines waiting to be deployed. Are we going to see cash start to move from corporate balance sheets now, or do we still need to wait for uh, the Brexit deal to be resolved? Is this general election and, and the Prime Minister's majority going to be sufficient? Well,
2: I mean, there is still um, and I'm tiptoeing into Sophie Zara and she, she, can, she can sort of correct me and, uh, and finish off whatever I'm saying, but with regards to, you know, we have still got like a very complicated part still to come with regards to the trade deal. that is still an unknown. You know, there are still some that saying that you could easily still crash out without a trade deal. Well, in, so
1: in, let's in, let's get Sophie's view on that. So what are the what are the chances of getting a deal done with the EU in a very short time frame? You mentioned that the withdrawal agreement bill in the UK um, leaving on the 31st of January. How likely is that?
0: Yeah, I mean, so after the 31st of January, we enter the transition period. Um, and this is the time where we must agree this trade deal uh, with the EU to avoid, as Will says, leaving with no agreement at the end of 2020. That's the deadline, December 2020. So that's why, you know, all the focus of, of next year will be on this phase two of the Brexit negotiations and, and what that future relationship with the EU will look like. You know, the, the revised political declaration, which which Boris uh, negotiated with the EU, will surely form a basis for the government's thinking. And we know that Boris Johnson has previously talked before about what he calls a super Canada plus agreement. Um, but the, the, the key point which you were alluding to is timing. And um, as we know you know the transition period will end in december as i said and whilst it's technically probably just about possible to do a trade deal in this time. It is a fairly tight timescale. I think everyone has agreed on that. Um, there is an opportunity for the Prime Minister to extend the implementation period beyond that December deadline. So basically under the terms of the withdrawal agreement uh, before July 1st, 2020, which is a key date, the UK with the agreement of the EU can extend that transition period for a one time period only up to the end of 2022. So he does have that option, although he has previously committed not to extend the transition period. Ha <sighs> This then brings back uh, the conversation about the size of the Conservative majority. Does that change things? Does it give him a bit more flexibility in terms of that deadline? Uh, You know, from the EU side, we've very much seen uh, the the EU Council president say uh, today, he's already commented that the EU is ready for the next steps on Brexit. And, you know, we can expect those talks to begin very soon. But I think there's still a question mark about that deadline.
1: Now, Will, on the US side, then, there seems to be some support for a quick trade deal with the UK. Is that realistic? And if, if if that does come to pass, does that mean anything for how the UK and Europe's negotiations might progress?
2: Well, uh, it's an interesting question here because, I mean, obviously the EU, with regards to their trade will deal with the UK, will not want... Um, the UK uh, to make an arrangement with the US that potentially undermines standards, um, you know, uh, uh, workers' rights, regulation, that kind of thing, um, with regards to um, uh, uh, the EU. So it's quite complicated in a sense. And if you look at it right now, obviously, and Sophie alluded to this, that the UK as it stands in kind of regulatory posture it is relatively even with the EU. Now, in order to get a deal done with the US, to a certain extent, there will need to be a changing of some of those regulatory standards, which in turn would make a trade deal with Europe more difficult to come to, uh, more difficult to arrange. And certainly within that time frame, that very tight time frame, that makes it more complicated. The easier deal to do on the EU front and the way to get within that 2020, or so the thinking goes, so to do one b- before the end of 2020, is to really keep things more or less as they are. Uh, and that would be a hindrance, one suspects, to a de- to a quick deal uh, with the US.
1: All right, then, going back to the UK. Sophie, it was obviously a tough night for Labour last night. In his address early this morning, Jeremy Corbyn said he won't be fighting another election. Is it likely that we're going to have another Labour leadership contest anytime soon?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question and, and one that, that, I mean, might be a bit moot when this goes out because I believe that Jeremy Corbyn is due to make a statement today um, at some point, but again, that's not confirmed. Um, you'll have seen uh, in their victory speeches uh, for those Labour MPs, front benchers who did retain their seats, they were almost sort of stump speeches ready for the uh, upcoming Labour leadership. So you had sort of the of Emily Thornberry and Keir Starmer, there were also Labour MPs who uh, lost their seats, who were seen as potential successors to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, uh, for example, um, Laura Pidcock up in the uh, up in North in Durham. Um, so it will be quite interesting to see. Yes, like you said, how quickly this leadership contest happen. Jeremy Corbyn has talked about a period of reflection. We don't know how long that period of reflection will be. Uh, so that question might be answered by the time this goes out. But I think that the leadership race is well underway already.
1: Well, and it in. In which case the next obvious question is do you think there's going to be a material change of tack because obviously the Corbyn approach hasn't been very successful would you say that we might see a move uh, uh, from Labour back towards the, the centre again more like the new Labour of Tony Blair or, or do you think that the, the Corbyn positioning might uh, might hold?
0: Yeah again a really good question and quite a difficult one to answer so soon after the polls have closed and the results come in you would expect the answer to be yes because uh, a big part of uh, this election has seen Labour losing their heartland seats. So why did they lose their seats? Yes, you know, people will analyse it to death and it will probably be to do a lot with Brexit, uh, but also how Labour ran their campaign, uh, the view of Jeremy Corbyn as a leader. We know that the polls show that he was quite an unpopular leader. Um, so I think, you know, lots in the Labour Party are calling for a bit of a realignment of Labour Party positioning, but whether that actually happens in practice is obviously yet to be seen. All right,
1: so I will accept that that was a pretty mean question perhaps an easier one for you what about Scotland it was obviously an impressive is that night. An easier
2: question it,
1: <laughs> it was obviously an impressive <laughs> night for the SMP. The thing that vexes me slightly is obviously England is now pro-Brexit Scotland is strongly remain the SMP have have strengthened their position. What does that tussle mean for us?
0: Yeah, they did have a really good night. The SNP um, came up a little bit short on the exit poll, but still um, uh, made some, some really significant gains. And Nicola Sturgeon was was all over the airwaves last night and into the early mornings, um, obviously claiming that this is a, a very clear mandate uh, for a second independence referendum. And and you know, as I said in, in, in answer to your first question, this is going to be a bit of a headache for, for the incoming government. Um, the Boris Johnson, when he first became prime minister, actually took the title of Minister for the Union, uh, so it. Shows how seriously he's taking the union and that, you know, he he wants to maintain uh, the union of four nations. But I think there'll be a real question mark over um, how long they can hold off in terms of uh, the sort of wave of nationalism in Scotland.
1: Now, Will, you've spoken about this before. What can we say about the economic case for Scottish independence? Not too much, to be honest. I mean, what we can say, I guess, is after
2: the experience we've had with the um, UK's um, decision to exit um, the EU, what we can say is that the uncertainty created by the necessary negotiations and the sort of, you know, the divorce and the future trading arrangements, that does hinder or deter investment. Um, And so you do find that there's some kind of drag or headwind to growth um, as a result of that. And if you look at kind of of you know the actual economics i guess a lot depends on where you draw the line in things like the north sea uh where you draw the line in the uk's debt all those kind of things uh, will have a, you know a significant bearing on whether you know uh, who wins who loses and what the kind of divide is so it's quite hard to speculate from this side but what we can say is that the uncertainty is likely a hindrance in the short term okay any final words from you two I've got a final word, actually. And I think, sorry, <laughs> <just> jumping in <laughs> there before. But, but the, the, I, I think one of the interesting things, you know, we've been pointing out for some time that, you know, that in terms of sort of, you know, global investors or investors who have a global playing field to run around in, the UK economy tends not to be a very important player. Um, and those sort of assets that, you know, closely uh, hug the UK economy's outlook, they're relatively rare, you know, sterling or bits of sterling, bits of gilts, uh, you know, bits of stocks, that kind of thing. But the interesting point was yesterday, the big news and really the overwhelmed in market terms, you know, what happened here and the excitement overnight. the the phase one trade trade deal deal, um, from from uh, President Trump, the US. um, And what you found is that that, uh, you know, you have seen a sharp rally in global stocks and a sharp sell off in global bonds. Um, which happily we're positioned for in, uh, you know, in our tactical portfolios. But that is really as a result of some of those kind of risks with, the, with regards to the trade war sort of receding a little bit. Some of those uh, recession risks are increasingly being priced out. And that's really the most important thing for investors to get a hold of. I mean, the UK election is obviously very important to us that live here. Um, but for our global investors, remember that there's, there's, um, there's bigger, things, uh, bigger things at work and probably the US economy is still the thing to keep an eye on.
1: That's super helpful, and uh, as you say, well, but the, the purpose of this podcast is to help investors look through that uh, the the press to see what's important as far as the portfolios are concerned. Sophie, any final words?
0: Um, I guess just to say, you know, as we look into twenty twenty, it will certainly continue to have a great deal of Brexit focus. This is not this is not obviously over, and the UK will leave at the end of January and the trade negotiations get underway. But it'll also be really interesting to see how the domestic agenda develops. I thought it was quite telling that the prime minister said in his victory speech that, you know, he said, what we need to do is we need to demonstrate to the people who voted Conservatives, perhaps for the first time in their lives, perhaps for the first time in generations, that we take them seriously. So lots to look out for in in 2020. I don't think it's going to be boring. Well,
1: it's the season for giving, and I thought I would give you both a gift in the form of some Christmas statistics. Consulting and accounting giants, PwC, forecast that average Christmas spending will be around £408 per person this year year, which is fractionately Well, I put
0: severe, you love this
1: stuff. <laughs> Come on, neither of us have had any sleep. You can't hear fractionally this. Fractionally down on the 421 <laughs> pound average from 2018. Um, Interestingly, the Centre for Retail Research identified that in 2018, around 31% of all Christmas retail shopping was done online. So, significant growth in online shopping. Now, whilst there's admirable concern about reducing the impact from single-use plastic, you may be amazed to learn, I certainly was, that an estimated 750 million Brussels sprouts are sold in the UK at Christmas, of which 50% are estimated to be uneaten based on 2018 estimates from oh, the ONS I Brussels
2: sprout. Have you seen my Brussels sprout jumper? I have. It's I just, phenomenal. Yeah. So
1: for, it's a great it's a great sadness that this is an audio podcast but uh, Hobbs is wearing a Christmas jumper with Brussels sprouts on it that have LEDs in that light up. Yes. It looks like the Brussels sprouts are being sick as well, which I don't think they are, but yeah. <laughs> Now, finally, whilst the Boeing 737 MAX fleet may have been grounded around the world, this hasn't hampered the aviation ambitions of youngsters. This year's top toys include the Barbie Dream Plane playset, the Owl Lee's Flying Baby Owl, and the Paw Patrol Mighty Jet Command Centre. And that's according to data from uh, Amazon and the Toy Retailers Association. Well, all that remains... I have to as- say that my youngest was... Asking for the poor patrol command
2: center, and I, I've just said no. Basically, Christmas is cancelled oh. from that perspective. I know, but anyway.
1: Well, if you have any thoughts on that, dear listeners, (laughs) please use LinkedIn to to, to lobby and rally around for some poor poor Hobbs' kids. All that remains is for me to thank our bleary-eyed guests this morning for staying up all night to give us some meaningful insights and also to thank you for listening. Um, We look forward to catching up with you, as ever, next week for another Word on the Street.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.